The idea that you could contain the answers for yourself and by dedicating time to exploring these things in meditation, and I would think um, also with attachment repair, you know, therapeutically, um, the, a whole different world shows up for you. That to me is, is really quite brilliant. You're listening to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast, the show that blends science and heart to bring you evidence-based tips and tricks for cultivating a healthy, wealthy, and meaningful life. Now, here's your host, therapist, yogi, and fellow full-life balancer, Dr. Caitlin Harkis. Well, hey there, Wisdom for Wellbeing listeners. I am delighted to be joining you here today. If we haven't already met, my name is Caitlin, and we are talking attachment theory and Buddhist psychology today. We have a wonderful guest joining us, Daniel Arham, and he's actually going to explain how these two areas are not necessarily so separate. They can actually be transposed, connected, and provide you a pathway forward in your life. Before we dive into a bit more of an introduction and an understanding around why this episode is, you know, I think really powerful, I just wanted to flag that in a couple weeks time, the Yoga Brain course that I am offering is going to be going live. So please feel free to head on over to Wisdom for Wellbeing Pod or drcaitlin.com and get on to the yoga nerds mailing list so I can let you know when when the course is out when you can sign up to get a bit more information about it and there'll be some free training offered around it as well so I'm looking forward to sharing that with you Hey there, Wisdom for Wellbeing listeners. I am delighted to be joining you here today. And if this is your first time here, welcome. My name is Caitlin. We are talking attachment theory and Buddhist psychology today. This is an area that I think is incredible. Well, two areas that I think are incredible. And what you'll be learning about today from Daniel Arham is about how these two areas can actually be transposed, overlaid, how they are not, you know, necessarily two separate areas. There's a beautiful synergy. My work as a therapist, you know, involves attachment theory a lot. And Buddhism is something that certainly has an influence when I'm in the room and when I'm working with people in terms of mindfulness practices and the like, but it it goes a little bit deeper for me because while most of you would know my yoga interest, you know, the fact that um, it was ultimately what inspired me to complete my PhD exploring the therapeutic uses of yoga, when I was first starting my yoga practice, I actually discovered Buddhism around the same time, specifically Zen. And that was something that was incredible because it was on campus. We were fortunate to have a Roshi who offered us opportunities to learn Zazen and to sit and drink tea after and discuss. And that practice, that philosophical framework has offered me a real anchorage in difficult times through my life in a similar way that yoga has and in fact the two in my life are very interconnected and as you're about to hear from Daniel attachment theory and Buddhist psychology can be very interconnected as well so 
In terms of understanding a bit about Daniel, he is a clinician based in Los Angeles and he offers attachment-focused therapy for individuals and couples, as well as meditation training. And his perspective is formed from a synthesis of attachment theory, neurology, Buddhist strategies, and the social justice framing of applied community psychology. As you'll hear, he does some incredible work with at-risk populations in treatment centers, trauma centers, jails, prisons, hospice, and as well, he runs a private practice, Pathwork, so it's pthwrk.com, where he has a host of other resources. You can learn there about the community work he does for Your Zen Life, which is where I first um connected with him where he offers this beautiful platform, an inspirational platform on Instagram where he is one of the co-founders and he runs a not-for-profit organization called Peanut Butter Sundays and you'll hear a little bit more about that in the interview ahead. I do just want to suggest heading to Pathwork as well because there's a beautiful oracle deck there and the conversation today also brings in some discussion around art and, and the role that that has in our culture and our countries. And I think it's really beautiful to see this Oracle deck on offer that Daniel and Anna have created. But without further ado, let's jump in and I'll introduce you to Daniel now. So hi, Daniel. Welcome to Wisdom for Wellbeing. I am delighted to be here with you today having this conversation. And, you know, the context is I actually found yours and life on Instagram and saw what you were doing there and saw Pathwork, which is um, your, you know, therapeutic universal gift offering. And I, I thought that this really aligned with, you know, where my head and my heart are at. And I know listeners will, will get a lot from this conversation and your work too. So thank you for agreeing to be here with me today. It's truly my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And so, so listeners know a little bit about who you are and the amazing work you're doing. I kind of alluded to it. Would you mind just introducing yourself and, you know, these heart projects you're offering? Yeah, happily. Thank you so much. So my name is Daniel Ahern. I live in Los Angeles. Uh, I'm a therapist and a meditation teacher. That's a challenging phrase for me to offer, but I do help people create practice. Um, I work primarily in mental health facilities, both with adults and teens. Mainly teens are my focus, so age 12 to 18. Um, These are crisis clinics for the most part, so dealing with uh, drugs, self-harm, abuse, suicide ideation attempt, that sort of circle of suffering, if you will. I also work uh, dyadically. I have clients that I see, and I do attachment work with them. Um, I think some of the things that I've done in the past that you kind of wrote about where I used to work with incarcerated populations, that was quite profound. Additionally, I do work um, with the unhoused. I don't know if you really call it work. Uh, I have an organization with my partner, Zach Strauss, called Peanut Butter Sundays. That's really a, a community engagement initiative that brings families and their kids together. The kids make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and we make sandwich bags. The kids all then skateboard together and the adults and some of the kids go and pass out the sandwich bags to the unhoused in, in Los Angeles. 
which is really in dire condition at this point. So that's some of the work I do. That's incredible. And it's really nice that, you know, you mentioned this cycle of suffering that people are in and experiencing that, you know, you go there with them, you haven't turned your back, you know, you actively seek to support. And I'm curious as to how, how you, you know, equip yourself to do that work, you know, what, what has it meant for you to be able to show up and support people who are in such, such suffering? What a great question. Um, well, maybe this metaphor will help. Um, you know, when you find yourself in a cold environment, when you're cold, if you keep just saying, it's cold, oh, it's so cold, it's so cold, um, there's a, a, this resistance actually makes you colder. If you can just accept like, this is cold and you turn towards it, there's relief, almost a connection. And I found that with suffering, that if I try and pretend that, I am separate from it, it actually causes more suffering. But that by continuing to turn towards it, is it terrible? Yes, but it's really what's happening. So for me, the only coherent thing to do is to engage with it. Uh, I, so I'm an engager, I'm not really a resistor. I, I love that languaging and engager rather than a resistor because I, I you know, I've seen, I think it, it's a a Buddhist equation, if we can call it an equation, but the, the concept that pain times resistance is what ultimately equals suffering. You know, this idea that, yeah, that when we, we resist, things get, get more difficult than they might've been before. And that's, that's really mm -hmm. interesting because it seems like you're engaging and showing up and, and living a life that is heartfelt and connecting. Mm. Yeah, uh, I think it was Ken Wilber, and I heard this voice through someone else, so it may not be exact, that this idea that when you turn towards these things, they hurt more, but they bother you less. Um, and I took real solace in that. Um, that's to say that this is what's happening. This is where we are. Um, as someone that practices a lot of, I guess, what people would call Buddhism, a cornerstone of that whole belief system, if you want to call it that, is interdependence. So the fact that we actually would feel separate is a distortion. Um, so I don't just try and go where it's needed and just keep turning towards it. It's kind of the way I roll. Interdependence. Now, this brings me into the concept of attachment because mm -hmm. we are such interdependent beings. You know, we, if we even take an evolutionary perspective, we, we really should not be the top of the food chain, so to speak. But the fact that we are so socially orientated and able to work together and connect has allowed us to, to move to this, you know, experience that we're now in. Yeah. And I know that you are an attachment focused therapist. So uh -huh. what, what, what does that mean? What does attachment yeah. mean for you? Great question. I'm so glad you asked. Thank you. So attachment theory really comes from a British psychologist named John Bowlby. He was the guy who really got it rolling. And there's been a lot of developments since. Basically, attachment theory is focused on the relationships um, and the bonds between people. So this starts very early on um, with your primary caregivers. For a lot of us, that's the mother figure and the father figure. We're speaking very heteronormatively. Um, and it happens uh, quite immediately, five to eight months after you're born, you start to receive this first installation of your attachment style 
for um, I believe what Mary Ainsworth calls, uh, excuse me, Mary Main calls uh, your attachment strategy. Right? It's a strategy for eliciting care. I want to kind of remove style and focus on strategy because it's a way to get needs met. Right. So this happens very early on. Um, five to eight months. And then after about two years, your attachment strategy is pretty stable. So what does that mean? That means the instructions that you received overtly, both by things that you were told and covertly, just by the way you experience the world and took it in, it creates a map that you follow or your projected worldview. Um, there's a bunch of other steps that go into it. The internal working model, which is your sense of self in the world, it goes on and on. I don't want to get too clinically. What's really interesting, and I think we'll turn the conversation in this direction, is that projected worldview, what you see, how you feel, um, what lights up for you, what you go towards. I found this connection in Buddhism and the belief of uh, belief, sort of the organizing principles of Buddhism to be so fascinating um, that I started to study it. And I started to study it pretty intensely uh, 12 years ago. Um, the portal that I discovered it was from uh, my heart teacher who is in Los Angeles named George Haas. He has an organization called Meta Group. And he was the one, the first person that I came in contact with who began to overlay the eightfold, eightfold path in traditional Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism with attachment theory. Um, and I was like, wow, tell me everything about this. Um, would you I, like me? I, I'm hoping you will tell us everything about that today because, uh -huh. oh my gosh, I'm lighting up hearing about it. What, what an incredible connection. And, and, you know, arguably the Buddha's, you know, sermons and teachings were, were psychological teachings, weren't they, in, in so many ways. So I'm really curious as to how this is overlaid and, and the interconnection there. I love that you're willing to see that. Um, you know, one of the things that I really speak to uniformly when I work, especially with teens and especially in mental health facilities and um, trying to uh, develop practices and, and use meditation as this technology for attachment repair and attachment stabilization it is to remove any idea that these are religious practices or these are spiritual practices, like really looking at them as mind training, training this incredible instrument to review where you are at this point and to make updates as you can. And then noticing perceptually how those updates expose a new world to you. What do you see? Um, and really harnessing the, the power of the technology of meditation to do this. Um, to speak specifically about what George was approaching, um, he took the Eightfold Path, which just to tell your viewers, that's right view, right thought, speech, conduct, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, concentration, this idea of organizing the self and developing these right ways of being. And because of that, achieving enlightenment or the sense of awakening and seeing how secure attachment um, really maps with that, that having a secure attachment awakens awareness, enlightens the world to you. I was so fascinated. It was such a cool way of synthesizing what, as you spoke to, I believe that these, these groups of people throughout the millennia were actually more like scientists than they were like priests. 
I think there's been things lost in the translation that these were people who are very focused, um, researching, comparing notes, exploring what they discovered, sharing um, the development of this technology of turning intrapsychically into your own mind and discovering what the how the self creates the world, which is pretty different. Um, than our Western view, which is you take in the world and you make a self out of it. Um, and I just found that so, uh, I still find that so fascinating. Fascinating and empowering in the sense, you know, we have, you know, this technology, the, this science from these, these traditions that we might be mm -hmm. able to harness to transform our world, so to speak, you know, the world we are experiencing. And it's interesting to me that you mentioned secure attachment and enlightenment mm -hmm. and this idea of being able to see the world as it is. So how, mm -hmm. how does the path kind of build us there, connect us there? What's the, what's the connection? What are the steps? Yeah. To, yeah. What are the steps to liberating yourself to enlightenment? Yeah, can um, you just sum that up in a few minutes Well, the idea really, I think, is approaching, I mean, we could, we could speak about what they were talking about uh, hypothetically with enlightenment and what does that mean to free yourself. I think what's more interesting as mental health practitioners, as we are, is liberating yourself from self-limiting beliefs that you sort of absorbed uh, consciously and unconsciously in early childhood and how those belief systems created a world that you find quite unsatisfactory. So in relationship to attachment, you discover that people often find themselves in these redundancies of relationships. My God, I picked the same person again and again. Why am I doing that? Um, discovering redundancies and the dissatisfaction they have in pursuing life goals. This doesn't mean anything to me. Why am I doing that? And these technologies, again, of meditation is a way to sort of shake that up and, and repair that. I think for the mental health capabilities, um, as a, a pretty anti-big pharma dude as I am, this is really empowering and exciting and radical the idea that you could contain the answers for yourself and by dedicating time to exploring these things in meditation. And I would think um, also with attachment repair, you know, therapeutically, um, the, a whole different world shows up for you. That to me is, is really quite brilliant. It makes sense. I mean, um, so a word, listeners, if you aren't familiar with meta is this idea of, you know, loving kindness, which has, you know, Buddhist origins. And, and there are a number of uh, therapeutic styles that really do speak to the therapeutic relationship as a modality for healing and mm -hmm. turning in to be able to care for, you know, our inner child as a way of nurturing and healing, almost cultivating this sense of loving kindness, compassion mm -hmm. within ourselves, providing something that we may not have got in those formative periods you mentioned earlier, which now I'm thinking, should we explain maybe, or would you be willing to explain a little bit about how attachment styles develop? Because that input mm -hmm. from what's happening around one as, as a young infant sure. um, results in certain patterns we notice. Right strategies, if you will. Um, I'll do my best to go back to attachment um, theory and how that sort of evolved in psychology. Um, Bowlby deduced that there's secure attachment and then there was uh, avoidant attachment, which could be called dismissive or anxious attachment, which could be called preoccupied. And then there was another category that was kind of 
can't classify, which we've come to understand as disorganized. Disorganized has um, both qualities of being preoccupied and dismissive. So looking at these as strategies um, and looking at the care that the infant is given, they sort of develop um, an attachment strategy as a way to get those needs met. So some children, if we're dealing with the insecure attachments of preoccupied and dismissive and disorganized, um, have unmet needs and they develop these very suboptimal ways of addressing those unmet needs. Um, I wanna really, really impress though that um, the, the transmission of these attachment strategies is quite unconscious. So in attachment theory, there's no blame to the primary caregivers. Uh, you got what you got. Uh, one thing that's curious about the lifespan issue of attachment is that it's pretty stable from one generation to the next. I won't quote the exact percentage, but from the great-great-grandmother, there's uh, almost an exact percentage of how that will get passed down. So these are unconscious experiences spiraling through the generations. And what's so exciting about attachment theory and if I may begin to speak about the work of uh, Dr. Daniel Brown, is now there's modalities that can repair those disturbances and take someone who's disorganized or take someone who's dismissive or preoccupied and move them into the secure category. Um, that's very new and really quite incredible. Um, and Dr. Daniel Brown created this modality called IPF, um, Ideal Parent Figure, which I practice um, under his supervision with uh, unbelievable humility from my good fortune. Um, and you can see really incredible results with people that have these attachment disturbances and then engage in this modality and they become repaired quite quickly. This is incredible. And, and I like that you refer to it as a technology. Um, you know, I've been involved in a little bit of epigenetic research. And what I find really fascinating there is that, again, uh, patterns that are passed down through the generations can be transformed and repaired. And that this is really empowering to note that in our lifespan, we can transform not only our own lives, but what we're handing down through the next generations. And I think that's, right. that's such a gift. I, I didn't realize the research around it being you know, attachment is you know, something that grandmothers might predict what's happening yeah. in, in their offspring so incredibly. Yeah, it's, it's pretty uh, profound. I, I believe the long, and again, please don't super quote me on this, soft quotes, uh, the <laughs> longitudinal study about the consistency of attachment styles as they were passed down went for, I think, 30 years. And the only reason it stopped, as was reported to me from um, Dan Brown, is that the invention of cell phone, the abandoning of the landline sort of cut off the research. Wow. So they would have kept going and studying, but technology, another form of technology. Would you uh, mind if we actually that. segue into this technology? Because the cell phone technology is is with us. And, you know, I speak as a, as a mother, you know, my phone exists in this house. And I'm, I'm curious about your perception sure. as to how these modern influences may affect the way we're interacting with our little ones and how that might have a, an effect on attachment styles. Happily, yeah. Um, I will crib a lot from my teachers, Dan and George, when I talk about this. I think we are at an unfortunate, uh, several unfortunate points in civilization. One, most people are overworked. 
they are expected to do too much. They are exhausted, um, especially with the pandemic in the past couple of years, at least in America. I think there are massive swings of depression and anxiety. And I would say that a lot of them are appropriate given the circumstances. So there's a lot of pressure. I say that to say that technology offers um, an ability to check out that sort of a digital cigarette, if you will. And we have been conditioned in our culture because we're such thinky people to assume that consuming data and taking on information is always a positive thing to stay in the know. I really see that more as um, a way to abate anxiety, to try and stave off anxiety or to try and find some sort of recourse from the longing of depression, wanting to feel connected. To what, how that plays into attachment and how that plays into childcare is I think people disrupt a lot of natural attachment to their child be, with their busyness. So, um, you know, I'll see it in Los Angeles that people be walking their baby, but they'll be on their phone or they'll be talking to their uh, baby with earbuds in. And I think this is going to play into the depth of secure attachment that people have. To quote Dan, people are too uh, involved in the job of parenting rather than the joy of parenting. And I, I never wanna slam parents, I'm a parent myself. It's exhausting and brutal and beautiful and too quick. But what we discover is that we're overwhelmed and we want relief. So we have outsourced our relief into these little nightmare machines rather than the old relationships that we used to have before such technology. You know, maybe you see it as a parent, like our children struggle to have just an experience of boredom, right? They, it's really problematic. It, it's as though we've demonized um, daydreaming, I guess, if you will, or if you're not engaged in something and being productive, uh, then you're wasting time. I don't think that's such a good move. Agreed. And I, I think that's really interesting how you mentioned, you know, that our phones provide this digital cigarette and mm -hmm. this idea that to alleviate anxiety, we need to be doing. And I'm really mindful. This is uh, a pattern that I see in myself is I feel when I feel emotionally uncomfortable, my my urge is to to do something, yeah. <laughs> you know, to, to, to regulate, learn, to consume. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's um, yeah. it's interesting that we as parents have this opportunity to perhaps model and to sit with you know, the experience as it is, which, mm -hmm. you know, is a opportunity to connect with children and to teach them. So it's interesting. You mentioned boredom as an experience that's perhaps important for children. Mm, I think it is. I mean, I think boredom is underrated. I think creativity uh, comes sometimes out of an absence of stimulation rather than just an abundance. I mean, I don't pretend to know the parameters of creativity, but I, I think that you, when you are overstimulated, it's exhausting. I mean, we're asked to absorb so much at moment to moment. There's screens and alerts everywhere. We're exhausted. Again, this is a push for a daily meditation practice. Which we will get into, but I'm just, I want to <laughs> grab one thing out of that, that nugget. So, so boredom and the fact that there's this nothingness in this space, which you might even call emptiness, this, this mm -hmm. opportunity to, to be with as is, and this place where creativity might start to unfold or develop. Mm -hmm. Prior to us actually hitting record today, we'd started to talk a mm -hmm. little bit about you know, art and, sure. and the connectedness in art. I wonder if maybe we could lean into that conversation a little bit. What, 
you know, what is the healing creativity art might offer us as individuals and perhaps mm. us as a species that is connected and relating to each other's art expressions? More beautiful questions. I mean, I think one of the things that art, let's talk about just music, right? Um, it gives us this sense of interdependence, of connection, of oneness. You know, there is so much we get. Uh, you see like images of a concert and seeing people in rhythm with one another, these ecstatic states of belongingness and connection. The, there's an immense power of healing and connection available in art. It is, um, I mean, this is a bit of a segue, but I, it stands out in my mind every time I think about art. I have a good friend uh, who's from Moscow, a beautiful artist, and she was so underwhelmed when she came to the States and saw how underfunded arts were in this country. Um, I say that to say she said something that was so stunning to me. She said, when you study a civilization, when you go to a new country, what do you do? You study their art. This is the emotional history of a people, of a moment. Uh, you don't go to their banks, you know, like you don't study their income. Um, and she was, it was so smart and so insightful. And I think about it all the time that art is this incredible resource that we need to fuel and obviously fund. It is a incredible uh, technology for connection and um, strengthening interdependence and awareness of one another. That's, that's lovely. That is an incredibly profound, you know, observation on, on her part that I yes. will definitely be reflecting more on. Mm -hmm. So the, the interdependence and the healing that might come through the experience of being in a moment with poetry, with music, with art, mm -hmm. or with another person, there's, there's a flow, there's a moment that can come with that. How, how do we use this? How do we use meditation to work mm. towards that healing of attachment styles that mm. attachment, you know, mm -hmm. strategies that may not be allowing us to, to live the life that we, that we feel most purpose aligned in? Yeah, great questions. I, I would love to be able to answer that really clearly. So we'll have to kind of, we'll waddle down this path together. <laughs> I <waddle>. think, <laughs> yeah, let's, I think. Um, let's talk about meditation as a technology, and we can talk specifically about how, at least in the West, it's often positioned and sold uh, in the same way that people sell anything else to re reduce the symptoms of. So I have a crappy work week, I'm having trouble, I meditate for 10 minutes and I feel calm and rested, and then I go back to my crappy life. Um, I don't like this. I think it's a, an inversion of the power of the technology. What I mean to say is meditation for the most part is really hard work, right? You sit there, you have to focus, you have to develop a practice. I'm a big lineage person. I believe you should have a teacher and teachers should have teachers. Um, this, these technologies have been, as we discussed, researched and practiced and studied and, and respected for millennia. So to just pick one, and think that you've got the whole picture is really, I don't know why you would do that. It seems a bit um, profane to me. Um, but, but my point in sharing that is you sit in the practice and you do hard work and you, I like this language of update your view and then see what the world looks like from that perspective and explore from that perspective and then go back to the meditation and do it again. And over time, neurologically, right? You're developing new neural pathways by focusing on these things but you're also just having different experiences. 
Um, I think that's tremendously exciting. Real How opportunity it... to experiment, isn't it? <laughs> 100%. Yeah, there's so many different things. And just to go back to this idea of boredom, I would say boredom for the most part is an issue with the, with the cell. But if you can let go of that in a moment, and kids tend to be quite gifted at letting go of that and look around, I mean, there's nothing but miracles happening everywhere all the time. Look at a tree, look at a flower, look at the sky. I mean, we're hurling through space right now. This is crazy. <laughs> why uh, Why we're not like high-fiving everyone we see and going, isn't this incredible, is uh, unfortunate. Um, so I would say that meditation offers you this ability to refresh or update and then begin to explore um, how that affects attachment or how that sort of ties into attachment. You know, attachment strategies are looking at patterns, relational patterns you have with the self and you have with the world. And meditation as a technology can really update a lot of that pretty quickly, I believe. So it's this rewiring, you know, you mentioned uh, mm -hmm. the, the, you know, neurological experience that meditation allows us. And you also flagged something that, you know, meditation mm -hmm. isn't I ideally used as an avoidance strategy where you go and carve yeah. out 10 minutes to avoid life and, you know, feel relaxed yeah. and calmed and, you know, are not impacted in yeah. a way that you're then walking back into reality. It's about allowing yourself the space to experience perhaps difficult things that are coming up or sure. comfortable things and, and yeah. be with. <laughs> yeah. I would say in psychology, we'd, we'd call it the development of perspective perspective taking. So developing that skill, learning to tolerate what was previously considered intolerable, um, beginning to see things as they are. So sort of removing the cloud and distortions of our perceptions that may be conscious or unconscious. And the more time we spend in the space of meditation, the unconscious can become more conscious, which is quite powerful. Rewiring, of course. I mean, the reason so many places that I've had the opportunity to work um, let someone as weird as me in the door is because neurology backs this up. This is not posi vibes only, um, which is fine if that's your path. This is not crystal technology, also cool if that's your path. But there is something quite um, scientific, psycho-spiritual about this work um, that needs to be elaborated upon and needs to be supported it, I do not like the idea of using meditation to go like be a more effective worker. I mean, shout out if that's what you want to do, but the design of these practices, you, know, you can call it enlightenment, but I, it, the design is really liberation, total freedom. And you get to decide what that is for you. I mean, look at your life. How's it going? Do you like what's happening? Let's get into it, right? So getting into life, getting into meditation, you know, you yeah. alluded to the fact that it, it's fruitful to, to choose perhaps a path, a practice, and, and to stick with mm -hmm. that. And there's beautiful metaphors. I'm going to perhaps do them a little bit of injustice, but this idea that, you know, if you dig 10 holes, you only go so deep. If you, if you dive into to one location, one spot, you can dig a really deep well and you can drink the water. So, you oh. know, yeah, it's, it's a good one, isn't it? It's not mine. And I probably could have said I'll give it more you credit. But, um, so how, how would we maybe look at starting a meditation practice in maybe mm -hmm. a secular sense and maybe in a spiritual sense? That's great. Um, I, you know, 
I would say there's a, a million different teachers. Find one and see how that goes for you. That's my first piece of advice. To begin a practice, I would say just start, set aside some time to reduce external stimulation and begin to look inward. I would say be patient. I would say be consistent. Um, I'd like to offer that I think we have this experience in our culture where we talk about mental health. So I want to map meditation with mental health. And we talk about mental health. We hashtag it. We have a mental health awareness day and month. And we have colors and t-shirts. But we don't really talk about what that is. It is this sort of etheric, uh, ephemeral state. Um, I like the idea of using meditation, let's say, if looking at, looking at that technology the way that one would look at physical health. Right? So physical health is something that we get in our culture. We want to be fit and thin and eat right. In order to do that, we set aside time and we allocate energy. Right? Um, there's a beautiful book called Beyond the Self by Matthew Ricard and Wolf Singer. And they, they talk about, they use the metaphor of if you want to learn to downhill ski, you can't do it for 10 minutes a week. You have to ski, you have to explore this. I would say if you want to have a practice, if you want to look inward and discover what's there, set aside time, make it a priority, explore it daily. Um, again, there are many teachers. I've learned so much from uh, George Haas at Meta Group. I continue to learn so much from him. I learned so much from Dr. Daniel Brown, who has uh, Pointing Out the Way, which is a very Tibetan practice, which I'm very drawn to. Um, I like a lot of the Tibetan stuff, it's esoteric and weird, and I'm a weird dude. Um, <laughs> but there's a million different places. I would say it's really helpful to start with something as basic as concentration, developing concentration, to go back to your concern about devices, and to develop concentration, really um, just begin to focus on your breath and spend time with your breath. Why does that develop concentration? Because if you're focusing on your breath, you're letting go of thought, the mechanism of thought, and steering your awareness back to the breath, back to another sense. Um, with that, you can build concentration over time. So it's this practice of coming back to the breath, cultivating that concentration mm -hmm. muscle that that skill Beautiful, yeah. and exploring and trying on maybe different styles of practice different teachers but then yeah. then committing ultimately to one and, and diving in i think so i think you know it's a learned pathway you have to spend time with it you have to make it a priority um you have to sit with it i, I think it's helpful to frame it as mental exercise as mental hygiene it's to uh, to understand that it's hard work I mean, to throw some of the things that I hear uh, out uh, right now, I often hear like, oh, I can't do it. My thoughts race, I can't do it. This, that, and the other. I'm not, I have blah, blah, blah. So I can't do it. All these self-limiting beliefs. It's like, you can do it. Can you only do it for a minute? Great, do it for a minute. And then keep doing it for a minute. You can, of course you can do it. You absolutely can do it. If you consider the fact that we're constantly walking around in a state of meditation insofar as, you know, referring to who our name is and what our past is, that's a form of meditation. You're already doing it. You're already telling yourself a story. So develop a practice where you can learn about that story and begin to change it. You 100% can do it. And, you know, going back to, to the populations that you work with, that you connect with, that you support, some people who have experienced real suffering in their lives are no doubt experiencing 
difficulties in, um, in their sense of self at current that you're supporting them to engage in this practice I'm gathering. So, you know, you're saying to us as listeners right now, we absolutely can do it. Is it just that matter of starting with one minute, starting with the breath or, you know, wow, great. yeah, of course. Yeah, I think so. I think, um, you know, whether you, you know, I would think that, I think that Dan calls it ethical training. I think that George just says it so it simply is making a commitment to be a better person, but then you decide what that means. What kind of person do you want to be? And then engaging in practices that support that exploration and the expansion of that, elaborating on that. Um, again, I like breath because building concentration is so useful, right? Concentration is learning how to hold your attention somewhere and keeping it there. That sounds useful. That sounds useful kind of across the board. You know, I'm, I don't believe in multitasking. I think that's a myth perpetuated by uh, our culture. I think that you can learn to develop it. I think that you can sit, you can find your breath and you can stay with your breath. I'll share with you this. Um, it was a very pivotal moment in my life. I was working with this organization called Prison Yoga and Meditation. I think that's what it was called. And we were going into LA County prisons and people were teaching yoga and I was facilitating meditation practice. And in the orientation, there was a Tibetan monk and they stand out because of their burgundy robes. And I was sitting next to him and filling out the paperwork. And there was a thing that said eye color, height, hair, et cetera. Um, and he leaned over with his clipboard and pointed to hair color and he laughed and he goes, I'll put bald. And he had a very thick Tibetan accent and he was really jokey. And he turned to me and he said, do you know what your the most important job in your life is? And I wanted to say something impressive. I was like, oh, um, my son, it's my son. It's taking care of my son. And he hit me with a pen and he goes, no, it's your breath. Oh. It's your breath. So dedication to your breath. And then he goes, I'm going to go get a donut and stood <laughs> up and went and got a donut. And I didn't see him after that. I don't know what that is, but it was really a beautiful reorienting experience. Um, and I come back to that a lot. That's Find really your beautiful. Your most important. And I mean, that is your life, isn't it? Our breath, our breath is this, this anchor in our life in a lot of ways. And how wonderful to see that modeling where he can, you know, move from moment to moment, you know, that he wasn't yes. holding on to that moment of the, the pen whack and the wake up and he was, mm -hmm. he was letting go and off to get a donut. <laughs> so great. I mean, there's a, I, I want to offer that there's a million different ways to get into this, right? Mm -hmm. I just encourage people if they're listening to start to examine that. There's been countless words throughout history about an unexamined life not being worth uh, living. Examine your life, examine your experience. Know that you have agency and develop that. So listeners, your mental hygiene project, like flossing <laughs> your teeth, like right. <laughs> making sure that you know, you're getting some physical movement in and all the things for the physical health is to, to start with your breath, to build from there. Yeah. And yeah. to, to follow the path. So Daniel, how can listeners learn more and soak up your wisdom? Where, where can they find you? Where are you at? That's really generous of you to say. Um, I, as you mentioned, I have a, a website called Pathwork. It's spelled P-T-H-W-R-K. It was just a way to sort of organize these different things that I'm interested in. It was also an outlet to share interviews that I had the opportunity to do through the wellness community with Teresa and Mark 
called Years in Life, where we discovered one another. So Pathwork is a great place to reach out to me. Uh, my email is daniel at Pathwork. Um, I help facilitate the Instagram on Years in Life. You can, I guess, reach out there. And um, more importantly than just reaching out to me, I, I hope that this conversation inspires you to begin to explore this incredible wealth of technology that we have. We are so lucky in 2021, right? First of all, you and I to be communicating across many continents, right? But also because of this technology, you can find teachers that previously you could not. You can discover practices that previously were unavailable. I know that it's very popular to talk about how terrible things are in the world, but we are at a really beautiful opportunity for a great expansion and a great evolution. I'm repping for engagement. I think we can do it. What a beautiful note to, to finish up on, to plant that seed for all of us of how we go, how we grow, how we connect. I'll put all of Daniel's details into the show notes as well. So, you know, if you're um, multitasking as you listen to this, ironically, um, please feel free to sit down and, and grab those details later when you have a spare moment. So Daniel, thank you so much for your guidance, for your wisdom, for this opportunity to bring these incredible technologies sciences mm-hmm. understanding of buddhism of attachment theory together as we as we look to to integrate and, and move forward in creating ourselves our lives our experiences i really appreciate the opportunity it's been lovely to share time with you thank you Isn't that a lovely note to finish the interview on? You know, this idea of the opportunity we have going forward, that the connection we have globally right now is a really fruitful time for our own exploration of ourself and this ability to cultivate our experience of ourselves as the people we would like to be. So again, to connect with Daniel, head to Pathwork, P-T-H-W-R-K.com or at Pathwork on Instagram, at your Zen Life on Instagram, and keep up to date with his offerings, what he's sharing, and have a bit of a think. You know, where could you possibly fit a minute in your day to dive into meditation? One minute might morph into two and it might continue from there, but as Daniel flagged, it's all about consistency, showing up, and that intention of connecting into yourself so that you can connect with others, so that you can cultivate that map, that worldview that is most effective in your life. I hope you're feeling inspired. I hope you are... (laughs) putting the phone down, turning off the podcast, and that you give yourself a moment just to breathe. And then I am looking forward to connecting with you soon. So just a reminder, head on over to drcaitlin.com or Wisdom for Wellbeing pod and get onto that Yoga Nerds mailing list so I can let you know when some free training is coming up and the Yoga Brain course will be released. It's all a little bit exciting around here right now. All right, bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. Please visit drcaitlin.com to connect, 
find show notes, other episodes, and to subscribe. While you're at it, if you find value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating or perhaps simply tell a friend about the show. Wisdom for Wellbeing is not a substitute for professional, individualized mental health treatment. If you are in crisis, please contact 000, your local emergency number if you are outside of Australia, or attend your local hospital ED.